Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A billion dollars in cuts is a daunting task, but Governor Josh Green has redlined a number of projects in order to balance the state budget in light of downward projections by economists with the Council of Revenues. This morning, we talked to Louis Salaveria, the state's budget and finance director, about the challenge ahead. First thing is, constitutionally, we are required to have a balanced budget. So it really wasn't an issue where we could have just allowed the budget to pass and then make restrictions because, again, the budget would have passed and the governor would have enacted it and it would have been an uh, unbalanced, basically in deficit. And the Constitution defines a balanced budget as revenues that come in as well as your carryover balance against your expenditures on the year. So basically what had happened is the budget was un, was out of balance, we were in deficit, and the governor had to come in and make those line item vetoes. And the reason why we had to come and make those line item vetoes is because of the Council on Revenues drop in projections in the beginning of May after the legislature actually signed dies. So when the legislature signed died, they were working off the Council on Revenues March projections, which actually had a 2% growth rate. And when the Council on Revenues met after the legislature adjourned, they reduced it down to negative one. And that is essentially what put the budget out of balance. And for the purposes of the administration, we went in and we made those line item reductions in order to bring the, the budget into balance. And it affected, what, 22 projects. And I believe the governor had said, you know, he just didn't want to nickel and dime the budget going forward, that this was just easier to hit some of these big ticket items. That is true. What we did is because the legislature uh, was working with a significant amount of resources during the legislative session, what they had done is they had um, appropriated a significant amount of what we would consider cash CIP. And these are cash uh, capital improvement projects, as well as other large cash infusions within the state government. But now, with again, with the, with the recent projections, it was a lot more methodical and strategic to just say, well, rather than going in and basically like, okay, well, uh, you know, we're not going to give you these positions that you requested for, you know, Department A. You know, we would take those and take a look at those very large line items because we did have to make a significant reduction, a billion dollars over the two years, so approximately $500 million each year, and said, what we'll do is we'll take a look at those projects. What can we reasonably expect to expend within a year? Because that money is only available for one year. So if you have an appropriation that's, that's you know, tens of millions of dollars, the reality is, can you actually expend it within the year? And, you know, we made the determination that it would be problematic and very challenging to do that. So why not go ahead, make the reductions this year, come in next year with a, with a much more clear view of state's finances, and, and and then we can actually take a look at these projects and let them go through their due course again. And the Council of Revenues is scheduled to me, I believe, August 1st. You know, lots of financial factors out there beyond our control. We got past the, the debt ceiling issue in Congress, mm-hmm. but we're still dealing with, you know, inflation, you know, the Japanese market hasn't rebounded yet. Maybe the Japanese will return to pre-pandemic levels by Q4 of 2024. So it is going to take a while, yes. And so all those things you have had to factor in when you came to these hard decisions. Correct. And, you know, again, the Council on Revenues, well, well they meet in August, but and they meet four times throughout the year to do the general fund forecast. But one thing that, that needs to be, you know, basically communicated is that even though we are for the purposes of accounting less general fund revenues, there was actually a constitutional rebate at the beginning of fiscal year 23, which cost about over $300 million. And that constitutional rebate was actually passed out. So it was a reduction to revenues. But if that constitutional rebate was factored in correctly, we actually wouldn't be at a 
negative 1% growth, we would be at a 2.8% uh, positive growth. So there was some accounting that needed to be taken into account in terms of the, the projection. So, you know, I just don't want people to come away and think, oh, it's like, oh, well, it's hurting the economy or all of these different things. It's actually furthest from the truth because the Council on Revenues and Tax Collections, with the exception of, of uh, you know, certain specific areas, are actually up. General excise is up. Transient accommodations is up. Uh, withholding on payroll is up. So there's all of these positive factors that are happening. But, we're, again, we're being very, very, very cautious and, and but optimistic with our with our forecast going forward. There's been some reaction from the various departments or, or from the folks that are champions of certain projects that, you know, got redlined. The Department of Education, uh, you had to pull back on the budget. Uh, what do you want to say about that? Actually, we did not pull back on the Department of Education's budget. We are actually, you know, what the legislature did do was, you know, they made, you know, their review of the, of the department's budget. There was some, you know, some last minute like rushing towards the end so some things did fall through the process but the intention really is that the legislature did give the governor discretionary authority over 200 million dollars that was appropriated for repair and maintenance throughout state government but giving the governor the discretionary authority to to use it to maybe fill some significant needs and one of the things that the governor is reviewing at this point in time, and we've been in conversations with the Department of Education, is using some of that discretion in fund to give to the Department of Education to make them closer to whole, at least to from this perspective of what the executive department requested. Well, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but wasn't the budget less than what they'd asked for? Yes. So the budget was less than what the DOE asked for, and it was made abundantly clear during the final days of the legislative session that there were concerns with the level of funding that the DOE was getting coming out of the legislative session. So the governor is going to use his discretionary authority to help support the DOE and at least get them some, some additional resources so that they can get closer to to the original amount that the executive and the governor requested back in December of 2020. And there have been stories about how the DOE has not spent money that was appropriated. It doesn't look good when you are given money, and at the end of the day, you don't spend it. So you kind of wonder, well, did you really need it, or what was the problem in getting those funds encumbered? It's a great question, and, you know, the DOE is a massive, massive organization. You know, they represent a big chunk, a humongous chunk of the overall state budget in general funds. So. You know, I think that there are going to be some instances where they weren't able to spend money quickly enough or, you know, certain things just fell through the cracks. But those tend to be more exceptions versus rules. So the money that the governor is looking to help the Department of Education with is to really go and, and shore up kind of like those base costs so that the Department of Education can really kind of focus in on, on all of the exact specific resources that need to go to, to the students and to the classrooms. The Department of Education is a independently run organization. They have autonomy. They have their board. But, you know, they're a massive organization, and I give them a lot of credit for what they're able to do, given the massive amount of their, their organization. Yes. I mean, it is bureaucratic. You know, we've heard it's bloated, and I know there have been attempts to really get your arms around the spending. And I know there's a matrix that they usually follow when it comes to repairs, repairs and maintenance. But then sometimes lawmakers do put in an appropriate money, you know, for pet projects in, in their districts. I mean, we've, we've all seen that, you know, over the years. But it is a concern. We've seen headlines about the school there on Maui, that the problems with the overpass and, and you're scratching your head. Why couldn't we have done what we needed to do in the first place? You know, but it is what it is. We're at this juncture, but you really want to make sure that we hold people accountable. Absolutely. And I think what you will see going forward is is a much more rigorous and, and, and structurally sound way of managing the budget as well as managing the financial plans. And we really want departments to really focus in on, on key measurements of performance and so that when we look at you know, the money that they're being given, and these are millions and millions of dollars, that we can make the justification for the money that, that is being appropriated to them. What is it that keeps you up at night, or, or is there anything that keeps you up at night w with uh, this budget? Uh, you know, I think one thing is, is definitely is, you know, 
we've just come out of a global pandemic. Obviously, major hits to you know to the global economy or to tourism in general do have significant significant impacts in in revenue collection for the state. So, when those types of things happen, I mean, it really is kind of that all hands on deck situation, and we basically have to hunker down and and make sure that we can continue to operate the state in such a way that can provide the services to the general public. So that's one big thing. And and so we're cautiously optimistic. Certain things are looking, you know, better, you know, even even within the, the continental U.S., you know, the fear of kind of this deep recession is kind of tempering a little bit. And maybe there'll be a slowdown, but, and then maybe it'll be a, a soft landing, all of these different discussions that are happening. But coming out of the pandemic, it really kind of taught us that, you know, revenues are really can disappear basically, in a heartbeat. And so what it's imperative upon us, I think, as part of government or anybody that has a keen interest in, in the state's economy, is to create those kind of resilient type of operations so that we're not solely reliant upon specific industries or, you know, factors of input. Again, big factor is is our importation of, of fossil fuels. Obviously, getting off of that and establishing a, you know, a more you know, robust uh, renewable energy ecosystem in the state of Hawaii are things that can help reduce Hawaii's reliance upon outside inputs. And those are the things that, you know, we're cautiously and we're very optimistic about Mm -hmm. what we can do. But it really is predicated on the fear that, you know, revenues can drop when you have these major global events. That was Louis Oliveria, State Budget and Finance Director, talking with us earlier this morning about the billion dollars in cuts announced by the Green Administration last week in light of a weakening economy uh, economic forecast by the Council of Revenues. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we're testing your knowledge of a favorite summer treat, ice cream, but more specifically, the ice cream cone. The popular treat hit the world of commercial consumption at the Criterion Coffee Salon in May of 1870. Yet the origin of the cone is one that is harder to trace. Many historians say the first one was served up at the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition in St. Louis, better known as the 1904 World's Fair. But food historians assert that the humble cone was first spotted in an 1807 etching of a Cafe by Philibert Louis de Beaucourt. Among a group of elegant Parisians sipping lemonade is a woman lifting a cone-shaped utensil. This metal contraption was a likely precursor to the edible cone, which has been traced to an 1877 British cookbook by Agnes B. Marshall. So what does this have to do with our local history? Well, we know that synchronicity is possible because a 19th century Kauai Kama'aina claimed to have invented the cone first. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you name us the, uh, tell us the name of the Garden Islander who claimed to have invented the first ice cream cone? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. Tonight at 8 p.m. on HPR 2, 
the Hawaii Symphony under the direction of Joanne Folletta will guide us straight into the stratosphere with a powerful performance of The Planets by Gustav Holst. And guest pianist Joyce Yang performs the Piano Concerto in A Minor, Opus 16 by Edvard Grieg. Join us for a night under the stars at 8 p.m. tonight on HPR2. Sponsored by Honolulu Financial Partners. A recent news story about bed bugs found at the Honolulu airport prompting the closure of several gates for treatment raise more than a few eyebrows. But that type of vermin isn't something that requires reporting to the state health department. We talked to Matt Carano, who recently took over as the head of the vector control branch of the Department of Health, about our public health challenges. There is no bed bug regulations. Our program, though, because we do employ entomologists, kind of offer more support. I mean, a lot of times people will be getting bites and they're not sure what from, so we can help identify bed bugs or other actually critters, you know, insects, but there is no regulatory program, there is no obligation. In general, when it comes to bed bugs, people will aggressively treat or hire somebody. Uh-huh. Bed bugs are more prevalent than people think and they can be moved, you know, all over mm-hmm. so restaurants even and people's homes and Right. places where people collect. Yeah, we were just talking with the library system, and I know they said that they a couple times have had to bring people in to treat. What is it that the department wants the public to know about vector control and what we need to be on top of? You know, I mean, we've just come out of the pandemic, and, and everybody is just very keenly aware of things that could affect our health. Coming out of the pandemic, all of us are acutely aware of how public health affects our everyday life. And while there's communicable diseases like COVID, there's also vector-borne diseases like dengue and Zika, which can be transferred via mosquitoes, but other times other animals as well. And our state program is really there to try to prevent that from happening and stopping the next outbreak and responding to it, unfortunately, if it does occur. But with climate change, as we all know, the severity of our weather and The frequency of extreme weather events is increasing, and our program has been very cognizant of that, and we're being directed to really prepare for these climate changes and then prepare for these extreme weather events that may increase mosquito population or rat populations and try to really become a barrier to prevent the next outbreak from occurring, which can be prevented because the beauty of vector-borne diseases, at least in Hawaii, is we don't really have endemic ones. We don't have dengue just brewing in the background. We don't have Lyme disease or Zika. So we do have an opportunity to prevent the next outbreak. And that's what our program is doing. And we did have concern about those two mosquito-borne diseases or transmitted diseases. And then things just kind of died off. You know, we didn't hear much about it. And I think that that's the power of our program. If we're doing our jobs well, when governance is done correctly and effectively, You don't hear about it every day. It's kind of like you don't think about it when you're driving on nicely paved roads. You only think about it when the roads are damaged. Public health is similar, especially in the environmental perspective. We don't want people having to think about going outside and being exposed to some kind of a public health threat. Um, We want everybody to be able to enjoy the outdoors and live the quality of life and the way of life that we've all been accustomed to. Hawaii is sadly no stranger to environmental public health outbreaks. We have a history of having had plague in Hawaii. We've had dengue outbreaks at the turn of the 18th and 19th century. And that's why we've always had strong public health programs and vector programs in particular. But over time, during economic downturn, certain programs do shrink. But now it's being recognized that, you know, public health, environmental health, there's really no distinguishing factor. And the vector program kind of lives in both worlds. We have to deal with environmental vectors and environmental impacts that increase risk, and it increases risk to public health through disease outbreaks. So our program right now is really looking to the future and really getting ourselves and the state prepared so that we can do our best to prevent any new outbreaks. But should disease find us, that we will be able to respond and really contain it. Because it's in public health, it's less about the bed bug or the insect itself, and it's really more about the disease coming to our shores. 
So we have a disease investigation branch at the Department of Health, and when we have patients that have to undergo testing because of an unknown or more exotic disease, it does get reported by our state laboratories as well as a network of doctors to the disease investigation branch. When our disease investigation branch identifies that it is a vector-borne or even a potential vector-borne disease, such as, like we said, dengue or Zika, they'll alert us, and that's what puts us into motion into going out to make sure that the potential vector, the way it spreads, is abated or suppressed. So that even if you do unfortunately have a diseased patient, that disease cannot be transmitted or the risk of the disease being transmitted can be tamped down. Okay. Bed bugs is not one of them. Fortunately, bed bugs don't really carry diseases that we're very concerned about. So while it's certainly upsetting, I don't want to have bed bugs in my own home the level of risk it has for public health is far smaller than something like an Anopheles mosquito that potentially could carry malaria or an Egypti mosquito that is a strong vector to spread dengue. And so what's a good reminder for the public when it comes to dealing with keeping the mosquito population down? Not all mosquitoes are equal. And the ones that we are most concerned of are the ones that you can do the most about at your home. Little containers, tofu containers outside, tires, but even small little red cups that maybe I've left outside can become really preferential breeding grounds to the types of mosquitoes that can transmit disease most effectively. So really just being aware of your environment, in your close environment, meaning your home and your yard, can really reduce your risk. And when there's situations that a person can't deal with themselves and it becomes a threat to the community, there is a program our vector control program that can respond. Okay, but generally just good housekeeping tips, I guess, you know, standing water, that kind of thing. If you've got a pond, put some fish in it. <laughs> yeah, we actually provide guppies for those that don't have it sometimes, you know, in their lily ponds and, and simple things. And it'd be surprised, like all things with health, an ounce of prevention is worth a pond of cure. And if there's questions, you can call our program. Okay. We'll happily respond. All right. But yeah, it, so this is then just something that states across the country are trying to be more cognizant of, you know, with climate change. And this is hurricane season, so we could be in for a bunch of rain at some point. But just to keep things in check. It is, but it's counterintuitive. There are partners in the South Pacific who do actually have endemic dengue, and this is a real problem. Thousands of people getting sick. The mosquito is the most deadly animal out there. It's counterintuitive, but it's actually time to drought sometimes that you see the most outbreak potential because the mosquitoes are drawn to where people have water. And part of climate change is not just more frequent hurricanes, but it's more frequent periods of drought and extreme periods of drought. Oh, interesting. And then I know there are different types of mosquitoes, right? There are day biters and night biters. Mm -hmm. That's correct. We have six different types of biting mosquitoes in the state. We want to keep the types as few as possible. And our programs, you know, we look at our ports of entry to prevent those from coming in. Invasive species and mosquitoes are invasive to Hawaii is really key to protecting our way of life. And we often have cases come in, like say someone gets sick because they've traveled abroad somewhere and then they either come back home or are here visiting and then, you know, they get bit by a mosquito and then that's the potential for the spread, right? That's exactly it. You know, we have over 9 million visitors a year and our residents going and visiting, coming back, and they're going in and out of areas that do carry these diseases that are spread by mosquitoes and other vectors. And we have to be aware of that. And because of that, we have to have a program to prevent any kind of transmission or spread. All right. Well, we thank you for your time. And then uh, just try and get the word out as you folks, you know, prepare for the next big thing. But, you know, I, I'm trying to remember when was the last time we had an outbreak? Because, right? you know, COVID has just consumed everything. It has. And... It was actually that 2015 or so time frame, but we've also had rat lung in between, which is vector-borne as well. And we do regularly have people that come to Hawaii who do Mm -hmm. test positive of carrying diseases that are vector-borne, like dengue. But we have been doing our job, and that's been helping suppress any type of spread, so we haven't had an outbreak, and we want to keep it that way. We don't want to wait for the next outbreak before people see the value in the work that we do. That was Matt Carano, head of the Department of Health Vector Program. Carano recently took over after many years with the State Department of Health's Clean Water Branch. He spoke to us about how the pandemic and climate change are having officials rethink how to prevent the next health outbreak.
Honolulu Civil Beat's lead story today details a blueprint of crime. Paying to play, laid out in court documents. Reporter Nick Ruby joins us for our reality check. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, now I hear you. So, yeah, this case that we're talking about, Navitech, uh defense contractor, uh, Marvin Cowell, I mean, it's been playing out in the courts, uh, but there's been some new developments. Yes, this is a, a, an ongoing case that really started back in 2019 when there was this mysterious company uh, in Hawaii known as the Society of Young Women Scientists and Engineers, LLC, that gave $150,000 to a super PAC um, that was supporting U.S. Senator Susan Collins of Maine. Um, now, that don't and was uh, problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, it was a shell company, and um, so nobody really knew where that money was coming from. Eventually, uh, we were able to figure out that that money did come from a, a uh, Hawaii defense contractor by the name of Navitech, who was owned by Martin Kao. Uh, from there, uh, the case spiraled. Uh, when his uh, cohorts gave many more donations to Susan Collins, all of which were illegal because government contractors are not allowed to actually give uh, political donations uh, to candidates. They're barred from it under federal law. Uh, and eventually, KO would get busted for um, committing uh, pandemic relief fraud, and he was indicted by the DOJ on charges related to that, as well as for these illegal donations. He's also pleaded guilty to these charges. But what we see happening now is that KO's former Steve Louie has filed a series of uh, legal actions against him and some of the others uh, who he accuses of ruining his company's reputation. And he has since seized control of the company back. And many of these filings that he have that that he's um, submitted to the courts have revealed a lot more details about the uh, corruption that was at the heart of some of these schemes. Yeah, I mean, it's like this dirty little secret, I guess, right, that's been uncovered um, because of this civil lawsuit. Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this is that it it does pull the curtain on uh, sort of the pay-to-play politics. A lot of us sort of cynics sort of think is commonplace in Washington and elsewhere, where campaign contributions sort of buy you access uh, to to people, and then that results in you getting some sort of uh, benefits, whether uh, it's a federal contract or something else out of the federal government. And so what I think is interesting about this is that in in this case, Kale actually got caught. That is more of the exception rather than the rule, uh, because as experts say, and uh, so one of whom I, that I actually quote in this piece, that that it's actually pretty rare for somebody to get popped for illegal campaign contributions and then suffer consequences uh, to the level that Kale looks to be uh, ready to suffer because he is set to be sentenced for prison um, within the coming months. And he also ran into trouble, too, because of... Uh an application that he submitted for PPP during the pandemic, right? The payroll protection plan. Right. So, so uh, Martin Kao, uh was, uh, he's pretty guilty to charges related to PPP fraud uh, in which he's, he was accused of bilking the federal government out of $12 million. Now, this is money that was supposed to go to small businesses that were struggling to stay afloat during the pandemic. Uh, some of the emails in some of the civil litigation uh, give us a little bit more insight into what he was doing and thinking as he was submitting false applications in which he inflated the number of employees that his company had and lied about the size of his payroll. Uh, at one point, he even said he had tricks up his sleeves uh, right before sending in his uh, application and even told some of his colleagues, let's chance him. Yeah, it really is an amazing story. And then uh, your story online also details some of the other contributions that he's made to local politicians. Well, Martin Keogh has made a number of uh, political contributions to federal candidates, many of whom have ties to uh, the the Appropriations Committee, which are the folks who 
control the purse strings. And among those are U.S. Senator Brian Shaw and Senator Mizi Hirono. Uh, that's not terribly surprising, given that they, Martin Cato represents, uh, is the former uh, head of a Hawaii-based contractor. But some of the more illuminating contributions are to sort of the politicians who are outside of the island, those who control over the government purse and federal contracts in particular. Yeah, it it really is a, a, a kind of a powerful story when you read the details. But thanks so much, oh, Nick. Appreciate your work. That was reporter Nick Ruby with today's Reality Check. Um, read the story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Arn and Ruth Wurchick Charitable Fund, believing in the need for trusted information sources and supporting Hawaii Island nonprofits such as Friends of the Libraries Kona. I'm Marco Werman. The world is full of stories. Israel's never before been in a situation remotely like this. So they put their hopes in China. We have a massive aging population here in Europe. When you arrived, in Ghana, then you tell yourself, this is where I should be. It's one hour each day when you get a global perspective. Join us on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Down to the Skyline Omen House. The city's mass transit rail system opens to the public for free rides in about 10 days. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden got to peek in on the operations center in Pearl City last week and is here to tell us more. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. <laughs> so during a tour last week, the city and Hitachi officials showed off some of the technology at this Pearl City operations center. And it features a state-of-the-art control center that uses human and artificial intelligence to monitor thousands of cameras along Skyline stations, routes, and trains. And Patrick Pricer is the city's director of rapid transit is because this is an unattended uh, train operation, there are you know thousands of alarms on board the cars, on all of the wayside equipment out there on the system, and that is constantly being monitored uh, both from a systems perspective and from a human perspective. And anytime there is a, an alarm, you know, uh, folks are responding, troubleshooting, and communicating that out to the field. In some cases, it requires human intervention to reset something, to troubleshoot or repair. And that's, you know, so it works as kind of a big system, people, process, and technology all together. But we should be very proud of this system because um, it is state-of-the-art when it comes to uh, the United States. It's the first of its kind. And it's a very safe system. You know, we have an, ex an exclusive guideway. We're not intermixing with any kind of vehicle traffic out there. We have automated passenger screen gates on our platforms to prevent anyone from going into the guideway. So there's lots of safety features built into the system as a whole. And while this is a driverless system, there will be train operators at every station, but they're primarily working in customer service, information, and maintenance if necessary. On every other train, there will be an operator or roving patrols monitoring on the skyline level, right? So the rail system has three levels of security. The first can be handled by station operators. The second is with contracted security that will be on site. And the third will be the Honolulu Police Department. And all of that is being monitored by one of 1,500 cameras throughout the system. J.R. Carino is the Operation Control Center Manager. And during the tour, we learned that he's an active Air Guardsman, as well as many other members of the team. 
I'm actually still a member of the Hawaii National Guard as an air traffic controller. Uh, a lot of our controllers are, are former air traffic controllers. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, um, a good set of skills that translates very well, helps them to get through this training. We've also been uh, fortunate to be able to, in this time of preparation, been able to build up and uh, bring up our some uh, fresh controllers out of our start, first started as station operators. They made the transition into here as information controllers. They completed the training, became train controllers, and we even have one that's a supervisor now that started as a station operator um, originally. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, our, so it speaks volumes about our training program um, and uh, the, the fact that we're able to um, to grow this resource, you know, here locally. You know, um, I'm, I'm you know, raised here myself, Eva um, Beach, and, and uh, you know, majority of our control center are from uh, Hawaii as well. And this operation center is 43 acres, and it also features a base yard. And while we were viewing there the other day, there were a few trains in for maintenance. Um, they have different sorts of safety features so that you can get under the train to look at every um, component and all the different types of maintenance. And at the train maintenance shop, Hitachi's Jason Lurz was showing off some of the trains and how that, those operations work. So we have three shifts here. We're running 24-7, uh, um, constantly maintaining the trains, keeping them safe. Um, the, a lot of the functionality on the trains basically are very redundant. Uh, as we were talking earlier about the safe stopping of a train, emergency stop, controlled stop. Um, this train is, uh, is monitored, uh, but it's driverless, so it has to be smarter uh, than the people that normally operate it. So, at this point in time, 17 is, is one of our newest trains that we've, uh, the city and county uh, has accepted from Hitachi. So we're here doing some of the final tests uh, and inspections from the operations and maintenance side uh, before we want to release it into revenue service. Uh, we have a couple trains coming in behind this one as well. So right now we have about 12 trains that are ready for operation and maintenance. All of them are running at a high uh, rate of availability uh, with very uh, few alarms. Uh, but we're constantly holding meetings every morning, going over bettering ourselves with DTS, um, uh, our client, and to provide a better service uh, for the city and county of Honolulu residents. So that uh, security briefing was really enlightening. You know, we got to see all of the screens and meet some of the people who are monitoring everything. And I, you know, it really does truly seem like a safe system. And you, you talked about training, and, and I mm -hmm. know at one time, I think it was Leeward Community College, was offering programs for prospective, uh, you know, workers. And so hopefully you'll mm -hmm. get a chance to talk to some of those folks. Yeah, back in, I think it was 2017, LCC opened up this program, and we're hoping to get some people who are currently working on the system. Yeah, it'd be, be interesting to see if they expand those programs, you know, because mm -hmm. we're, we're going to need employees if they haven't got them already. <laughs> <laughs> right? Lots of uh, uh, workers are in demand right now. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it, it is pretty impressive when you go in to see, you know, the brains behind the trains and how it's supposed <laughs> to all work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, well, you have fun out there uh, later this week when you, when you head on out there. Thank you, Again. Catherine. We have been talking to HPR Sabrina Bowden. She's keeping an eye on Skyline, Honolulu's rail system set to open with limited hours later this month. Time now for our backyard quiz answer. We're going to treat you with that answer. Summer and ice cream go hand in hand, and lucky for us, it's been in Hawaii since around 1870. That's when the Criterion Coffee Saloon first offered it. Some people say you can't eat the creamy stuff without a crunchy cone, and this morning we asked you about the cone's history. The first ice cream cone was claimed to have been introduced to the American public at the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904, yet some argue the cone had earlier French and British origins. Still, Kauai resident Josephine Wonderberg King claims she invented it in the 1890s. As the story goes, after serving ice cream to the ladies and children of the Hawaiian Sunday School at her home in Lehue, she noticed that her spoons were disappearing. So she instructed her local Japanese baker to roll senbei cookies into cornucopias or cones 
to hold the ice cream, a local-style treat designed to prevent spoon burglary. Thanks to uh, Robert Schmidt and the Hawaiian Historical Society for this yummy bit of trivia. And we had no winners. We stumped you on that one. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Over 180 plant lovers are on a quest for perfection. Members of the Garden Club of Honolulu have been working hard, cultivating and grooming treasure plants to showcase in this weekend's flower show, Oceans Beyond the Reef. It's on display at the Honolulu Museum of Art. Co-chair Janice Laufergus sat down with the Conversations Lillian Song to talk about the long-running show that aims for artistic and horticultural excellence. We hold our show every three years, but... It's been five years since we had our last show, mainly due to COVID. And I would say it even goes beyond three years because some of our plants, the requirement is that you've had to own it for 15 plus years. And so these are kind of our treasures. I mean, these plants are really part of people's families. <laughs> and so they, they'll bring it out and really show it because it's something very special and something that they've spent a lot of time doing. So some of these things, as I say, go back many years. And there is a, a general requirement that if you have a plant in a show, you have to really own it for a minimum of three months. But that's a minimum, and there are many classes that require six months, a year, even five years. Wow. Something that takes five years to go from maybe just a junior plant to maturity mm-hmm. or the size that your club members are envisioning for their exhibit, they are bringing out their treasures. I mean, these are their babies. And right. in this three-year span, they know that, oh, I'm working toward this project or exhibit. Yes. Lots of times you will see a really nice plant or it's very unusual and you'll say, oh, I I have to buy that. My flower shows in two years. I'd really like to exhibit it. So it is a long process. And the show is judged. We actually have close to 100 judges from the mainland, from garden clubs throughout the United States coming to judge our show. And, you know, the reason you have a show judged is because it really brings out the best in everyone if you know that you're actually going to be judged. Now, some people don't like that, but, you know, I think for many members, it's just the opportunity to display a plant. And if you're just doing the best that you can to display it, you know, it's a winner. It's a winner in your own mind. And obviously, there are some people that can grow plants better than others, Not always. You just never know because everything is so dependent on weather. (laughs) There's a lot of ifs, ands, or buts, and we really don't know to the final day of what we call passing what plants are really going to be entered. Now, when it comes to floral designs, you really can't tell what's going to win. It's because various things that you have to do when you make a flower arrangement you know, are your plants coordinated with each other? You know, do the colors blend together? What about the container you use? Is it integrated with the flowers? So there's all those different things. We're just trying to look at the whole unit. And sometimes visitors will go to the show and say, how did that win a first place? <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, some of it is subjective. But we do try to use what we call our principles and elements of design, and we try to use that criteria when each exhibit is being judged. Well, Janice, it also goes back to beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yes. As you look at each submission, you are getting a little window into that gardener's mind. I mean, hey, if I was actually at a plant sale and I saw this really unique orchid and I might say, I'm going to invest in this because I feel like I could do something with this. That's really what makes the flower show fun because it can become a personal challenge. You know, obviously, you're going to maybe have some disappointments, but that's okay. I mean, your plant, 
a year and a half from now may not turn out the way you thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, that's a learning experience. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. I was really intrigued, touched by your comment about how these plants are somebody's treasures. So for you yourself, what treasures are you bringing to the show? Well, you know, at first, because I said I was too busy with all the administrative things, I wasn't going to do anything. And normally I'd be entering a floral design, but I just don't have the time administratively. But I do have an Ethereum plant. And it was funny because I've been waiting, just wanted to make sure all the leaves didn't fall off or go brown or that it was out of shape. And it has survived the last six months. So I was really grooming it yesterday. And when I when you groom it, you take off the dead leaves, you wipe each leaf and stem down so that all the dirt is off. And it actually looked pretty good. So I'm hoping that it will survive the next two days and I can take it to the show. <laughs> oh, very nice. You're totally like babying your plant. You're presenting it at at its best. Well, that's what you try to do, and that's why we actually have classes in grooming of your plants. So it just makes sense. It just makes it look so much better. This is the first time I've heard of grooming a plant. So I'm quite intrigued by that. Props to you and your members working so far in advance. So you have to be good planners. Well, we've done it so many times, so many years that I think everybody is almost used to it, but it's fun. I mean, it's always good to have things growing in your yard for whatever reason. Hmm. And were there any speed bumps? Did anything happen in the last two years that somebody's plant may have decided, I'm not going to be as happy, I'm not growing? Well, all the time. (laughs) really? And, you know, we have one class called what we call fragrance. So obviously we would like a blooming gardenia, But, you know, you can do some things, but you can't make a plant flower at a certain time. So some of those, you know, you might have had the best intentions, but, you know, it bloomed two weeks ago or it's going to be blooming in two weeks. So we have those kind of so-called disasters. We have other disasters, too. You know, we will not accept any plant that has any type of insects. One reason is for the museum, but also that's just a requirement. And many times, you know how it is when you think you've kept your plant free from insects and the ants still get there, whatever way. And as co-chair, what would you like to highlight or underscore as this flower show gets underway? When you read the title, Flower Show, you know, you, you come with the expectation that there's just going to be tons of flowers, and there will be. There's a lot of flowers, but there's also a lot of plants and very interesting things about plants. Many of the plants will have detailed information on how the member grower actually propagated the plant, you know, the growing conditions. Was it in full sun? Was it indoors, outdoors? So those things are very educational to the visitor. Our show is called Oceans Beyond the Reef. And many people will ask, what do oceans or what does the ocean have to do with plants and flowers? And it really gets back to we are an island and everything that is grown here came over the ocean. It could have been a plant seed through a bird or seeds through the wind. But also, the ancient Hawaiians used canoes to bring over what we call canoe plants. And this will be one of the big exhibits at the show. We actually have a real, I think it's a four-man canoe, right at the central courtyard. And it will be filled with plants that were brought over on the canoe by the Hawaiians for their sustenance. Things like banana, kalo. And Ulu, there's about 20 or 25 canoe plants that the Hawaiians brought over. So this will be an interesting exhibit. We also will be showcasing some native plants. And, you know, there's a real trend right now to go back to using native plants in your garden because if it was a native plant, 
there's a probably a good chance that it's going to survive well in our climate. I mean, obviously, something that grows in the mountains is not going to grow near the seashore. But if you choose the right native plant, it will really thrive and probably not need a lot of care. So this is a real push, not just by the garden club, but by gardeners in general. So we also will have a very informative educational exhibit again on oceans. There'll be about six different topics, you know, reefs, seaweed, those things that are very interesting topics regarding the ocean and very important for our environment. The other thing we will be having is in the theater, we will be reshowing what we call our conservation conference. And basically, it was a national Garden Club of America, America conference on Hawaii. So we had all local speakers talking about Hawaii, and basically it was informing our Garden Club of America members that the ancient Hawaiians had a very logical, almost advanced system with the ahupua'as, really from the mountains to the ocean, and how everything tied in with each other, and how nothing was really wasted. You know, it's just so unique. And just knowing that our ancient Hawaiians were really so sustainable in their early times is pretty incredible. So that was kind of the basis of the conference. We have Nainoa Thompson speaking, Dr. Sam Gone, Chipper Wickman of the National Tropical Botanical Gardens. So these pretty well-known speakers in Hawaii will be talking about Hawaii and its environment. Mm. So. Even if you're not a, a gardener or a grower, it's it's a beautiful show, and the museum is the perfect venue for it. We are very fortunate to be able to use the museum. So I would say just come on down, and you'll be treated to a very, very nice exhibit. That was Janice Lau Fergus of the Garden Club of Honolulu with HPR's Lillian Song. That club, by the way, started in the 1930s. The theme this year, Oceans Beyond the Reef. It kicks off this Friday, opens through Sunday at the Honolulu Museum of Art. We'll have links on our page at hawaiipublicradio.org. time now. Tomorrow we plan to learn more about the status of Compact of Free Association with our Pacific uh, Island neighbors. Got some feedback? Share your comments or questions. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.